from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. On November 8, 53% of Missourians said yes to Amendment 3, a measure to decriminalize the sale, consumption, and manufacturing of marijuana for adult use. Part of that amendment included provision for clearing certain cannabis-related criminal charges from people's records. The amendment went into effect on December 8th, and there are plenty of questions folks have not only about what these automatic expungements encompass, but also how will it actually work. Later in the show, we'll also take up the impact of cannabis legalization in the workplace. But we'll kick off this Amendment 3 follow-up with expungement. And here in studio to address that is John Payne, the Legal Missouri Campaign Director who oversaw the winning ballot initiative and served the same role when Missouri legalized medical marijuana in 2018. John, welcome. Thanks, Elaine. Good to be here. And we have Matt Schmidt, an attorney and assistant public defender, recently based in St. Louis and now working in Cape Girardeau. Thank you both for joining today's show. Absolutely. Good to be here. John, you were the campaign manager of Legal Missouri's ballot initiative Amendment 3, and a big piece of that win isn't just the promise of anybody 21 and older buying legal cannabis. It's clearing convictions of folks who right now have criminal records for cannabis. Give us the basics. What does Amendment 3 say about expungements? And what does that mean practically now that it is passed? Yeah, so Amendment 3 enacts the broadest uh, expungement that has ever been passed uh, on marijuana uh, in the country. Uh, and it, it uh, you know, orders the courts to expunge automatically all nonviolent uh, marijuana offenses. Uh, there is an order in which they have to do those things. So, for instance, the misdemeanors are supposed to be expunged within the first six months. Then the felony offenses that are eligible within the uh, the first year, uh, and I believe it's uh, A, B, C, and D felonies of over three pounds, those are expunged upon the completion of that person's sentence. But all the other ones, that even if they're actively serving the sentence, those are you know, eligible for expungement pretty much right off the bat. And you said three pounds? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Matt, just this weekend, you held a clinic to help people with cannabis convictions who are looking to get those records erased. In what ways are these convictions for cannabis possession holding them back in life? Well, there's a variety of sort of state benefits and things, you know, including student loans, you know, some welfare programs that people could have. Uh, but most of the people that I've talked to who are not currently serving a sentence or on probation are more concerned about getting that off their record for jobs. Um, so in, I mean, one lady who came to the clinic told me that um, you know, she had been passed over for a job because um, the, the, the city just didn't respond to like the background check fast enough because she had sort of old marijuana charges here. So I think that's the, the main concern for people I've talked to who are not currently serving anything or on paper. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, out of curiosity, about how old was the, the woman that you were just speaking about? Oh, I would say late 20s. Late 20s. Okay, so still relatively young uh, with a lot of life both behind her and ahead of her. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's some sort of mythology. I think people don't want to uh, admit what we've done, but she had previously served a 60-day sentence for marijuana, mm-hmm. so people get locked up and put in jail for it all the time. Right. Or used to. And as John has just explained, the expungement is automatic under um, the way that Amendment 3 was written. And there are, as John mentioned, deadlines built in for misdemeanors. So say you have a misdemeanor for possession of cannabis on your record. And in real life effect that you've just told us about is that it could keep you from getting certain kinds of employment. And under the new law, the court where you were convicted is supposed to go back to its records on its own and erase it from all records. And the court itself is supposed to do that by June 8th, 2023, which is six months from the date that Amendment 3 took effect. Now, when it comes to cannabis-related felonies, which have broader and more serious consequences than misdemeanors do, courts are expected to do the same clearing, uh, though they've got until December 8th, twenty-three. Um, which is 12 months uh, to complete that. So again, uh, you've just done this clinic, and the courts are supposed to do this expungement. You're helping people petition the court on their own. Why is that? Well, uh, in in cases of people who are uh, have an old charge and stuff, uh, we're not actually filing the expungement paperwork. I've I've talked with uh, our court clerks here, and as you, you know, you keep saying those deadlines, but you know they're starting now. And so uh, the purpose of my clinic was sort of to gather people who sort of needed it urgently and may not know how to do this. And if you're uh, in a different county and you, you've got this problem, I would call up the court clerk where you were charged and explain it to them, and they may do you first. So it's more of a matter of like skipping the line for some people. Okay, and taking some initiative to do that. Right. Right. Now, John, in an interview with the Missouri Independent earlier this month, Stephen Sokoloff, the general counsel for the Missouri Office of Prosecution Services, he talked about the expungement deadlines that are set down by Amendment 3 and said that he doubted the deadlines could be met and called them a procedural, quote, nightmare for the courts. What do you think of that characterization? Well, I think uh, Stephen Sokoloff probably doesn't want those deadlines to be met because he opposed the amendment in the first place. Uh, but, you know, it, they are aggressive, uh, you know, the, and this is going to be a lot of work for the courts. You know, when I say that the expungements are automatic, I mean they're automatic for the people who are getting the records expunged. But there's absolutely nothing automatic about it for the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to go in and particularly on the felonies. Uh, the misdemeanors are relatively straightforward because those are – there's actually a statute that is, you know, possession of marijuana under 35 grams. That's a misdemeanor offense. All the felony offenses are just classified as possession of a controlled substance. And that could be, you know, when you just see that charge, that could be marijuana, that could be cocaine, that could be methamphetamine, or it could be some combination of any group of controlled substances. And so in those cases, the courts are really going to have to go in and look at the factual uh, basis of the case and say, okay, yes, this one is purely just marijuana, and so we can expunge that. But if it's, you know, something, some other drug, then that's not going to be eligible for expungement. So those distinctions then, do you see those as being part of some of the complications that would hinder the courts from making the June 8th and 
December 8th expungement deadlines? Yeah, I'm less worried about the June 8th one because that's all the misdemeanors. Those are very pretty straightforward in terms of the felonies. The felonies will be more complicated. Now, the the flip side of that, though, is there are fewer of them. Uh, The vast, vast, vast majority of these cases are misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's the but as the felony cases that will require more research. But, you know, the thing is, is that the courts have requested a supplementary budget uh, to do this. And, you know, from everything I've seen, it seems like that's going to get get approved. But obviously that we're just at the beginning of that process. The legislature won't be back in session until, uh, you know, January. But that should provide them the resources to get the job done within the timeline. Mm -hmm. Now, back in 2018, Missouri voters passed a ballot initiative that legalized medical marijuana. That initiative did not include expungements. What is it that motivated the 2020 campaign to include that expungement piece? And and how did it arrive at its final version? Yes, I mean, we we really did uh, want to include something on that. Just all the the stakeholders thought it was an important issue. Uh, But, you know, when you're drafting a ballot initiative, there's kind of a few things that you have to look at. There's, okay, what do we think is the best policy? And then what will the voters support? Uh, and fortunately, the, those things lined up in this case. The, the voters were very strongly in support of expungement. However, uh, you know, they, it was also clear in our polling that voters wanted – they didn't just want uh, everything expunged all at once for uh, no matter what the offense level it was. Uh, so we had to draw some distinctions in there. Okay. Uh, and so exactly where we drew those lines, that was, you know, kind of a contentious those, – those could be contentious conversations because mm-hmm. there was always people that wanted to push it farther and then other people that said, hey, you know, I'm, no one was really against that in principle, but it was – the further we push this, the more we risk the whole thing because it's not, you know, when these things go up for a vote, it's not as if there's a line item veto for the voters. It's it's an up or down vote on the whole thing. And so any unpopular provision in there can cause the whole thing to founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was really the, the trade-off that we were looking at, uh, trying to push it as far as possible within the bounds of public opinion. And whom did your polling include? So, uh, you know, I, it was a random sample of, I, I believe, 800 uh, Missouri voters. Uh, and, you know, that it's the, you try to get a good cross-section of demographics in the state. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, was, it, it proved reliable because uh, as we tracked the, the polling through the, the process, you know, we ended up pretty close to where our final polling was. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to emphasize that we're speaking in St. Louis, but this is statewide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it, if it was just the, the city of St. Louis that was in the poll, it could have, probably would have been very different and could have been a very, a very, very broad initiative. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, we won 73% of the votes here in the city of St. Louis and about 60% in the county. Uh, but then once you get kind of into more southern or northern Missouri, uh, those, you know, we there are v- relatively few counties that we mm-hmm. carried out there. Okay. And Matt, uh, you are in Cape Girardeau. Um, we'd like to know what you've been seeing. So it's not just expungements where this change in the law is making a difference. What is it that you're seeing inside courtrooms? You know, have judges yeah, yeah. already stopped charging people for cannabis? Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been pretty great up and down. Uh, the day after uh, the vote, like so the Wednesday, um, the prosecutors dropped the two uh, felony marijuana cases that I had. Uh, so it basically took effect immediately because they just realized we could draw those out until the deadline um and then on the 8th itself december 8th when the law came in i saw the first guy come in on a marijuana charge and he was on probation for that and um 
they were getting to the part where they uh, talk about revoking his probation. He gets to ask for a public defender. So I started paying attention. And then the judge realized the underlying charge was marijuana and just let him go right there. Um, so for a lot of these things, if, if you know, you're know you on probation right now and the, the charge hasn't been cleared, if you get a violation and get in a courtroom, the judge is just going to dismiss it there. So we're seeing basically every day for the past couple of weeks a bunch of charges get dismissed and dropped one way or another. So the effects were immediate. Right. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a very quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue the conversation. We've been talking about the expungement of marijuana convictions brought on by the passage this past November of Amendment 3. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. We're talking about the changes in Missouri law now that recreational cannabis is legal. We've heard from John Payne, who managed the campaign that voters approved to change Missouri's constitution, and from Matt Schmidt, an assistant public defender who's watching how the new law is playing out in courtrooms. There's another group that's tuning into this process with keen interest, employers and their workers. And joining our roundtable to talk about that area is Brian Pezza. Brian is an employment and labor attorney at the St. Louis law firm, Lewis Rice. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What are some of the most common questions you're hearing from employers who are trying to figure out what to do about their workers and legal cannabis? Probably the most common question that I've heard uh, has just to do with the basic question of whether they can continue to prohibit the possession and use of marijuana among their employees while at work or while performing work if they're not at an employer location. That um, answer is fortunately quite clear, and the answer is yes. You you can continue uh, to prohibit that as most employers' policies have done. And from there, we get a number of other questions that are somewhat idiosyncratic, depending on the the type of employer who's uh, asking the question. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of what a couple of those quirks might be by industry? Sure. Largely, it depends on two things. One, they would go down a safety road where they have employees who are uh, somehow... um, in a safety-sensitive position or who may operate equipment or may drive uh, vehicles that uh, certainly you can't do while, uh, while intoxicated, uh, whether it be marijuana or, or any other substance. And the other um, is uh, employers who are really struggling to find workers, period, and they want to know what, their, uh, what this, this change is going to do with their uh, drug testing policies it may do at, uh, at pre-hire, many of whom have, have already been uh, becoming more lenient and some stopped testing for marijuana even uh, before the passage of the amendment. But those are the two types of, uh, of questions that we've been hearing. And of course, sometimes uh, in, say, manufacturing uh, in particular, both of the questions overlap and we have the same employer expressing the same concerns. 
Mm-hmm. And do you think that pertains mostly the, the concerns to issues around liability? I think so. I think people are always worried about, uh, when it comes to safety in particular, uh, worried about what's going to happen if uh, some accident were to happen at the workplace when all of a sudden there is now focus on the particular employee and all the circumstances that led to it, and whether the employer had done enough to protect both that employee and any others who may be affected, uh, where liability could certainly fall as a result. Um, Also, I think they're uh, concerned about what kind of, um, what they might lose by way of uh, government funding, if they have, if they're a government contractor, for instance, or if they have requirements for their own customers to make sure that their employees are are drug-free, how do the, the... legalization impact uh, their obligations to both the federal government on the one hand and perhaps their their customers on another. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the federal government, um, you've mentioned that some employers, like those who deal with transportation, they're federally mandated to perform drug tests on their workers to make sure they're not impaired. Has that changed at all? It has not uh, with respect to... Um, I should be clear that with respect to recreational marijuana, uh, employers still have great latitude to, to, to test and to take adverse action uh, in this much the same manner as they had done before. But one important part of Amendment 3 was to expand protections for employees who have um, medical clearance from mm-hmm. their uh, physicians to use uh, marijuana. And in that instance... There is a carve-out from the anti-discrimination provisions that are new to uh, Amendment 3 for employers who would lose some financial benefit or licensure under a federal law Mm -hmm. or a federal grant program, because, of course, marijuana is still uh, illegal under federal law. Right. Now, other employers in construction, energy, and healthcare, they may not do such testing to adhere to federal mandates, but nonetheless administer drug tests pretty regularly. What changes have you seen there, if if there are any? Well, to the extent there are licensure issues, where perhaps a license uh, would require that someone periodically Uh, be tested, uh, even outside of the federal context. I think the issue, if the employee who needs to maintain a license can't maintain the license, then they may have an adverse uh, experience at work, an adverse employment action, because of the loss of the license, which is not something that the employer can necessarily control. Mm -hmm. So it may be a case in in healthcare. I've heard that specifically with respect to certain security guards, for instance, who have to have uh, maybe a local permit, and that permit requires drug testing that may or may not have adapted yet for uh, Amendment 3. Mm -hmm. Now, are some employers simply moving away from drug testing for cannabis? You know, we've been talking about the legal aspects of it, but clearly if voters have voted to approve Amendment 3, there has also been a cultural shift. Um, you know, is moving away from drug testing for cannabis a, a trend that started maybe even before Amendment 3 passed? 
Absolutely. And, and I think that goes to the question of the, uh, the labor shortage uh, as much as anything with, uh, in many industries where if employers continued to screen out uh, potential employees and applicants based upon marijuana convictions, they're shrinking the pool of the available workforce uh, beyond what their, their needs would allow. So that's the first place I've seen where employers began to stop testing and become more lenient uh, over the past couple of years. And certainly I, I'm sure that the passage uh, of the legalization of medical marijuana in 2018 certainly accelerated that. And that's what I had seen. And we're certainly seeing that far more now, both from a, a policy perspective based upon uh, the cultural shift, as you noted, but probably more, more pragmatically uh, because of the need to have the broadest uh, labor pool that they can possibly have in these uh, tight labor markets. Mm-hmm. Now, I do realize that your work focuses explicitly on the employer side of things, but it would be great to get some perspective from the worker side. Are there protections in place for employees who say, hey, my employer cut my hours or fired me because I was using weed or enjoying edibles legally during my off hours? Well, I I think the question, the, the question that I would have for that individual is, was it, is it because of a medical need and for which you have a medical card or not? And if, if not, then Amendment 3 doesn't provide much of a firm protection. And I'm not sure exactly how I would advise that person other than to say that if you're going to be making those kinds of decisions and you're currently employed, before you uh, decide to partake, uh, take a look at what your current employer's policies are. And hopefully, if the employer has, uh, has available policies that they've published, you can do that and see whether it's currently prohibited. And mm-hmm. from there, make an informed decision about what you're going to do with your, uh, with your, your recreational time. Now, mm-hmm. if you are, uh, have a medical need, well, then you have many more rights now than you did uh, prior to December 8th. And I would suggest that uh, for most circumstances, it would be uh, treated, I would speak to that person much the same way as I would for anyone with any uh, disability that would be protected under uh, federal or state uh, disability laws with respect to accommodation or otherwise. And and I would uh, recommend that that person be upfront with their employer when and if it becomes an issue uh, and be very clear about the medical need that they have and uh, disclose as appropriate their, uh, their, their medical marijuana card. John, as we're talking about employees, um, can you tell us about what the new employee protections are and why they were added? Yeah, so uh, essentially what the amendment says is that uh, if you are a medical marijuana patient with the card from the state uh, and you are uh, using medical marijuana outside of the job, uh, so, you know, not during, not on the premises, not while you're working, uh, but in your own personal time, that outside of some of the narrow exceptions uh, that were outlined earlier, uh, you know, you cannot be 
fired or refuse they can't refuse to hire you cut your hours take you know yeah take the, those adverse actions against you uh, legally at this point uh, so that th- those are some new protections and you know we felt like that was appropriate because you know for a, a someone who has a medical marijuana card that's someone who has a medical need uh, for marijuana uh, and so it's not uh, it, it would not be fair for them to be uh, treated uh, you know harmed by their employer simply for that fact. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are, uh, are safety concerns about being impaired on the job, and so those things are restricted still. Uh, but uh, we did think that this is a, a, a good way to put in protections for people that have a medical need for marijuana uh, but certainly don't want to lose their job over it. And Matt, who is uh, still with us here, um, as a an assistant you know, public defender, is there anything that strikes you um, in what you have experienced in, in talking with different people about that employee side of things? You know, we did hear your perspectives on uh, expungements and how that would help people get jobs. How about when they are already employed? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't really come into it until you get charged with a crime, right? So uh, the focus has generally been on cleaning people's records off and letting them be available for jobs. And again, uh, certain government benefits um, that are on here. I mean, there's the employers that, that I'm you know most familiar with, it seems like they don't really care what people are doing on their off hours, and they're kind of happy to have this taken off their plate. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes there's rules in society that everybody follows, but um, the business owners would kind of prefer not to have to do this thing. Now, I'd like to ask about the criticisms that did come up around the Legal Missouri campaign. Um, in the lead-up to the vote in November... There were some folks who voiced some considerable and quite vocal opposition. Um, and these were folks not only from legalization um, activism circles, but also political figures like St. Louis Mayor Tishara Jones. And just a week before the election, Mayor Jones put out a statement that included the sentence, simply put, legalization does not equal decriminalization. Now, given that environment, what forward-looking takeaways have you gleaned from Amendment 3's victory? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first, I, I think it, it is decriminalization. I think we've, uh, uh, you know, Matt's point speak to that, that there are people's uh, cases that are being dismissed uh, and people re- being released from uh, parole, probation. Uh, those are those are important facts. Those are things that are really uh, big changes for people going forward. Uh, and I would also say that, you know, I, I think we kind of threaded the needle here because uh, we I think we created the broadest thing that could pass in the state of Missouri. Uh, you know, you you cannot just uh, have an amendment that is pitched to uh, progressives, liberals in the state of Missouri. That that won't pass. <laughs> this is a red state. Uh, you have to win conservatives. You have to win kind of, uh, you know, libertarians on the right. So, you know, I think we managed to get something that you know, could bring together a coalition that spanned uh, political ideology. Uh, and, you know, we carried 73% of the vote in uh, St. Louis City, but we also, you know, we won St. Francis County where Farmington is. And we, uh, 
held her own down in Cape. It was 45-55 against, but, you know, that's you have to win a lot of conservatives to get 45% of the vote in Cape Girardeau County. Did a lot better than the Democrats did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like an 80-20 thing, uh, Republican-Democrat down in, down there. So we're winning Republicans. We're winning conservatives when we when we have those sort of results. And, you know, there's, there's certain you can't go too far uh, uh, and still keep those people uh, in your camp. Brian Pessa, an employment and labor attorney at the St. Louis law firm, Lewis Rice, Matt Schmidt, an attorney and assistant public defender, recently based in St. Louis and now working in Cape Girardeau, and John Payne, the legal Missouri campaign director who oversaw the winning ballot on initiative, uh, the initiative uh, Amendment 3. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and enlightening us um, with all of this background and information. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.